a big vision, I guess, you know, for me in the long term, and I guess probably a lot of people is, how does this all work when the grid can talk automatically to a system that's autonomous and has the ability to respond in very logical ways? Mm. You know, that is a very big question. And that moment where, you know, grid is intelligent, the vehicle is intelligent, and they can communicate real-time messages about savings and all these things, you know, as a completely rational actor, that's going to be a very interesting future problem um, that needs to be solved. We have done trials. So in Australia, we did a trial with a company called Busways and Endeavor Energy, who was a distributor. And we actually, we did say, you know, send them signals. Hey, you know, this is what the load is right now. And they could respond. It was very R&D and a lot of these are still R&D. Um, but look, there's big vehicle to grid trials. There's, you know, this is definitely something that's actively happening you know grid companies are very alive to this opportunity now this is a huge revenue opportunity for them so you know, they're investing they're engaged um, at least from their side welcome to the mobility innovators podcast hello everyone welcome to another episode of mobility innovator podcast i'm your host jaspal singh Mobility Innovator Podcasts invite key innovators in the transportation and logistics sector to share their experience and future forecast. In this episode, we'll be discussing electrification and energy transition. Our guest is the founder and CEO of EV Energy and Betterfleet. EV Energy is a company that focuses on accelerating the adoption of electric vehicle and helping fleet transition to zero emission technology. The company works with utilities, government, and businesses in implementing EV charging infrastructure and optimizing their energy system. He also launched Better Fleet to plan, optimize, and manage the transition to zero emission. Before co-founding EV Energy, he worked with some key players, including Flow System, Veolia Environment, and Siemens. He's a lifelong learner and has earned a degree in environmental management and strategic management. I'm so happy to welcome Daniel Hilson, founder and CEO of EV Energy. Now it's time to listen and learn. Hey, Daniel, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. The topic of energy transition is on everybody's mind. Everybody's right now talking about electrification, how to move towards zero emissions. So it's it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's so good to be here. I'm a very big fan of the show, as I said to you when we caught up at the UIT event in Barcelona. So yeah, very, very happy, big fan of the show. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, really encouraging to hear from you because uh, at the same time, I'm a big fan of what you are doing. And uh, I, I love entrepreneurs uh, who are building something and trying to solve some big problem. So why don't we start a discussion with your personal journey? Because it's very interesting. When I did some research and I found uh, uh, your education background, you did bachelor in music and communication. And later on, you did double masters in strategic management and environment management, which is completely different uh, things and later you work with some key infrastructure player before creating uh, EV energy in 2017 as a solo founder which is again very remarkable so can you share some key highlight of your professional journey and actually what motivated you to shift your career from executive to founder because the transition is not easy a lot of people do that and then they feel it's it's hard to be entrepreneur yeah, look, great question. I mean, um, yeah, just to be clear, I do have a co-founder, Nick Butlin, as well, who's our CTO. But um, yeah, look, it's been a, an incredible journey. And, you know, from my perspective, the the highlight really started when I found that 
nexus between my passions for business and and climate technology mm. um, was really sort of took off for me. You know, obviously I was very passionate about music. I did um, play jazz and classical and all, all sorts of things, which was which was amazing um, uh, experience and privilege. But you know, really for me, my career kicked off at that point. And you know, I like really big hard problems. I like you know real world problems. It's very inspiring and obviously very motivated by um, the challenges of climate change. And so, you know, highlights for me, I guess, um, big infrastructure projects like airports were early on for me, looking at precinct infrastructure was a theme that I went into. And then, you know, the most exciting first point was working for Siemens and getting um, a career start in sustainable cities, thinking about, you know, really large precinct scale problems around energy and waste, um, transport, and mm. working with universities, campuses, you know, those were really exciting problems. You know, how to optimize um, at that scale for sustainability was 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 great fun, very rewarding. Um, felt like it had great impact. I worked at Veolia in a very similar role, you know, looking at that kind of precinct and city scale, um, you know, district healing and cooling systems, and you know, how would mobility play out? And then my my last role was very inspiring. It was a company called Flow Systems. Yeah. Um, that was part owned by Brookfield Infrastructure, mm. which really took that to the next level. It was looking at new communities and how do you how do you build new communities for decentralized water, energy, and transport, um, which really led me to the nexus of my current uh, you know startup that I founded, which was uh, we were building a big science park and I was doing the analysis for you know large scale microgrid and a decentralized energy and water network, and really the question was on everyone's lips from an infrastructure funding perspective. You know, how much electricity we need for transport and no one really knew yeah. i mean this was 2014 so i had to get conviction and i got conviction and i said this is going to be big this is going to be a hard problem um which led to my company which is which is the highlight of my career i guess you could say it's not my first startup i did have a startup when i was about 25 um mm. many years ago i'm aging okay. myself um and yeah that was a software company uh but this is sort of you know, a larger scale business and something that's been um, very successful. I had some challenges um, in other business, you know, been, I've had highs and lows, to be honest, and learned mm -hmm. a lot along the journey. Um, but, you know, this was really uh, the autonomy is obviously very stressful, um, running your own business, but the dynamism and the impact you can have, um, you know, when you're trying to scale a solution in this sustainability space and trying to build a good corporation that you know, can add, add value you know to staff and you know it's, it's it's really exciting i love it yeah no adding value that's that's i always tell like is the real purpose of entrepreneurship if you can really add value and solve some big problem because there are a lot of new venture which start and solve some small small thing but solving the climate and environment issue it's, it's really big heart and and when you said the, there are a lot of ups and downs so somebody told me our heartbeat is up and down so if it's state line it means you are dead so yeah. same, it's like <laughs> entrepreneur life. You have to have up and down. It means uh, the entrepreneur life is uh, is uh, alive and we are thriving. Now, you mentioned that this is a company you founded and you're really passionate about EV energy and uh, the company is helping different stakeholders to plan energy transition. And you rightly said in 2014, people have no clue how much energy they need or how they should plan, where to start. That was the bigger challenge they were saying. And, and with your company, you're actually helping them in planning and you have worked on some Right. I would say one of the largest transition in the world, including 8,000 vehicle, 56 depot transition for New South Wales government in Australia, which was quite remarkable. And then you work for entire Welsh government network, King County Metro in Seattle, Honolulu, 
and TFL network provider of paper. So can you tell in more detail what problem EV energy is solving? Uh, you give a little glimpse, but I would love to know a little bit more in detail. And if you can share some case studies, like how client reach out to you and then you provide the real solution to them so that they can expand and they can move toward transition. Sure. Well, look, I mean, the spirit of big, hard problems, I mean, our mission is to accelerate the transition to zero emission transport. That's yeah. that's the macro mission, right? So if you look at it, how do you solve that? You know, operationally, commercially, how do you make that transition simple, enjoyable, operationally efficient, and sort of commercially optimized? Um, yeah, that's a really great sounding mission, but it's really difficult. And on the ground, the reality is there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of resistance, there's a lot of bad experiences, to be quite frank, that have, have yeah. occurred in this transition, um, which is leading to a lot of fear. And so, you know, when you look at that and you say, there are just a lot of problems to solve. So there's not really one problem, but the macro problem is, you know, we need to solve this climate problem. We need to do that quickly. How do we make that happen at scale all at once is a very challenging problem. So obviously when we started, we started micro. and We had to do some projects. We we're lucky enough to work with, the ACT government, I think, was our first project. There's a large sort of government fleet. This is sort of similar to Washington in Australia. It's the it's the um, you know kind of capital. And yeah, it was really just this was a very early transition. There usually what happens is a minister or someone's made a commitment, and yeah. then the operational people go like, how do we meet that commitment? That just seems so difficult. So that was really you know total cost of ownership modeling, infrastructure selection. How do we do these things? And you know I was in the face of that talking to the customers. You know. My co-founder and the technical team are building algorithms to try to do that faster. How do you scale? You know, how do you do that quickly? And and so you know, we we I guess went from that point. The New South Wales government, um, again, huge, ambitious, and admirable commitment from a minister. And yeah. then the question is, how do we give them an accurate budget? Eight thousand vehicles, fifty-six mm -hmm. depots. How do they sequence that? How do they integrate with the grid? You know, so we this is when we first build our digital twin, which has become our core technology platform. Um, the Better Fleet platform, and we are actually kind of you know, naming ourselves Better Fleet in the US, just just by the way. So that digital twin platform enabled this level of accuracy. We we could model the topography, all the routes, all the block schedules. You know how would that impact in terms of the efficiency of vehicles? So we built a a physics model around the vehicles, and so mm -hmm. you really think about you know a digital twin with vehicles running around that you know New South Wales network coming back to depots, charging for periods of time, you know, what does that do to the network in terms of, um, you know, the grid requirements of that depot? So that digital twin then enabled us to do scenarios. And that's what people wanted. So they wanted to be able to say, but what if we go hydrogen? You know, what if we get faster charges? What if we do on-route charges? So with that base, we could then build on top of that, this really powerful scenario engine, which is how you solve this problem. Because when there is no answer, you, yeah. have, to, you have to optimize to a problem. So go ahead, you know, looking at the private operators were other problems that they had. They had to, they had to bid for eight-year contracts when mm -hmm. people were saying to them, you need to do zero emission vehicles and transition. And they're like, well, <laughs> we don't even know what vehicles. We don't know what infrastructure. We don't know how to do that. So we had to give them very accurate models so they could put in bids that, that they could put their hand on heart. So, so many of these challenges. And, and you know, King County Metro, you mentioned, they wanted to visualize what was get, what was happening. Yeah, you know, we had this digital twin. There was no front end. It was very much you know, algorithm. I mean, there's a front end, but it wasn't visual enough. So we built a demo, yeah. demo emulator, and people could see the vehicles coming in and out. Um, and then they could get buy-in from their stakeholders because you know people don't believe it's going to happen. It's going to work. We could show them visually, 
Um, and then when you get into the real-time environment and our charge management, because we've got Betterfleet Plan, which is the planning software, and then we've got Betterfleet Manage, which is our management platform, people are starting to realize, you know, the same problems. How do you park? How do you dispatch? You know, will that vehicle meet that route based on the topography, the climate on that particular day is a very different problem, particularly for electric. Mm. You know, how do you do that is different. You know, King County Metro, a big temperature drop between days can be a 40% yeah. efficiency difference, right? So yeah, lots, sorry, lots of problems. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a place with a lot of problems to solve and, and, um, and hopefully we're helping with that. No, that's amazing. And I love your point about like, what you're creating of digital twins for fleet operation. And you rightly said, when operator doesn't know how things will look like in eight years or 10 years, it'll be very hard for them, them to put together things. So how will you bid? How will you ask for budget? How much money you require? How much infrastructure you require? How much electricity load you require? And and what I'm seeing is a lot of operators are feeling uh, scared by listening to all this stuff and they feel like it's too complex. Let's not just do it. Uh, let's just avoid it. But I think what you are trying to do is you can make the picture more clear to them. It's like you have a crystal ball for them and they can see in crystal ball and say, okay, this is how things will look like for our operation and let's go for it. So so that's a great job. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's definitely you know, finding a lot of value around the world and that's why these operators are using it because that uncertainty with people particularly have to plan in 10-year timeframes, you know, like... Yeah. A lot of operators have to do budgets for, you know, way into the future. And it's been, you know, very difficult for them. Um, and these are these are big dollar amounts often, hundreds oh, of yeah. millions of dollars of budget. Yeah, the each bus costs more than 1 million in US, 1.2 million. So even 100 buses cost $120 million. Now, you mentioned that you are doing all over the world. So that's, that's something very interesting, even being started. Uh, I mean, I will not say EV Energy is very old company. You started uh, six, seven years back, but already you're working in different continent in country, Asia Pacific region, North America, you are based. And then also you have client in Europe. And you must have seen that many countries have set their own net zero goal. Somebody want to achieve net zero by 2040, 2050. Somebody want to be more ambitious and say 2035. But the the mission is same, but the path will not be same. Everybody has to take a different path because each city, each country is very different. So can you share some of the difference between region and impact of local climate and some of these operation reality? Like you mentioned about King County Metro, low temperature and suddenly the boom, you need more heating and more energy uh, consumption will be required. And if I may add, which region will lead in decarbonization race? Like you are seeing race between different regions, which region will be the winner? Okay, it's a good question. Um, I mean, on the first part, I guess, you know, when you look at particularly, you know, electrified transport, um, there's definitely very big impacts in terms of things like climate and mm -hmm. topography. So, you know, we've done work, you know, in the Welsh uh, government, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of temperature drops, a lot of difficult topography, you know, talk about Singapore, we've done work, extreme humidity, you know, heating and cooling is a very big energy um, ancillary load. So it does have a very big impact on, um, on on the efficiency of vehicles. So that's one big thing. You look at places like London and New York, spatial constraints is a huge thing. Yeah. You know, you've got a depot and you've got to fit charges and you've got to suddenly, you know, maybe have a backup generator and you've got to, you know, whether it's hydrogen or electric, there's, there's new equipment that needs to go in. And some of those depots are so incredibly spatially constrained 
just because of historical purposes. I mean, trying to trying to get a piece of land in London right now for a bus depot <laughs> is not an easy task. So then you've got, you know, some, obviously the different models. So there's franchise yeah. models in some countries, obviously, you know, fully um, government run in others where the behavior is very different. You know, the optimization that's needed when you're competing for a region, you know, drives different behaviors and different sort of outcomes. So I'm talking mainly about fleet because, yeah, that's where we're focused at the moment. And then there's grid constraints. I mean, there's some places in, for example, the Netherlands, which is very advanced. There's just literally some places you cannot get new grid new grid capacity. It just doesn't mm -hmm. exist. Um, so that's another sort of example of where that can be a challenge. Obviously, with hydrogen, the same thing. You know, there may not be hydrogen physically available um, economically or, or at all. Yeah. Um, Honolulu is a really interesting one. Yeah, they've got enormous solar solar resource, and so. Mm. For them, the goal when we work with them was like, can we just use that solar resource for two reasons? It's obviously very environmentally beneficial, but also the cost of using our solar that was was very prohibitive. So the whole design of their entire system was very much geared towards, you know, how do we do super fast charging, have on-route charging to make sure that we can um, do that? I mean, in terms of the race, look, obviously it's different in different political climates, different um, different. Uh, you know, even vehicle classes. So for example, Norway has always been, yeah, the leader, you know, to a large extent, incredibly ambitious, you know, very, very strong legislative environment, you know, lots of yeah. sticks. But China, you know, they just came in and said, we're going to electrify our buses. And they just did thousands and thousands of them all at once. So it kind of de depends on how you define, you know, leadership. And yeah. it also can be very regional as opposed to national. So you know, California is very strong. You know, London's very strong. So there's a lot to do with sort of geopolitical and local conditions that sort of overlap that I kind of um, I kind of mentioned. And um, you know, I guess a plug for, for for us. I mean, where you plan well, you can move fast, and that's yeah. <laughs> you know in any environment. You know, if you do plan well, you have a plan, you can execute faster. I, I love your last line. If you can plan well, you can move faster. So it doesn't matter even if you have big money or big resources but if you fail in planning and everything else will collapse so so the who will be the winner ultimately the the country or the city which can plan well and move forward and do it and and something you mentioned a little bit about the grant program like many cities are funding many countries are funding and uh, some countries are funding capital model some countries are funding uh, operational model uh, there was a study done by international energy International Energy Agency, IEA, and which say that to reach net zero emission by 2050, we need at least 4 trillion uh, investment by 2030. So we need huge investment in coming years. So this is a big investment number. How do you think agencies can fund that? Like, did you see any good grant program available to fund uh, increased expense? Because for operator, that's one of the biggest challenge. When I talk to them, they say my cost will double, the CapEx cost will double or triple. So why should I do it and how will I fund it? So can you share some example of grant program and which you feel probably agencies should explore to, to get these money? Yeah, I mean, look, obviously globally, there's there's many, many programs. And I think, you know, if you step back from grants for a second, you say like, how do you get this to happen? There's obviously sticks and carrots. So yeah. there's emission standards in Europe, which are very effective in mm. driving long-term behavior. Um, you know, typically I think a lot of people would say that's a, a good approach. Um, it depends on who you talk to. 
there's obviously <laughs> carrots of grants, right? So, you know, that's a, a, a key, um, you know, weapon in the decarbonisation um, approach. And, you know, in the UK, there's a Zebra program, you know, a lot of money going into decarbonisation. It's complicated because you've got operators and agencies and you've got to figure out how that all works. Obviously, the US LONO has been the core yep. driver in transit for decarbonisation. In the, in, the in the US, there are hundreds and hundreds of grants, you know, state grants, grants through municipal planning organisations, federal grants through the Department of Energy or the Department of Transport. So being sort of strategic about those, and they break down into, I guess, in some ways, the grants that are really about innovation and the first projects and the grants that sort of are supposed to be more programmatic. And a lot of the recent, you know, conversations I've heard from people is like, we need to move into that programmatic, you know, don't make this about a competition where someone wins a competition, they put everything into it, they overpromise mm. often because they just want to win the competition. And I've seen a lot of examples of the project not working because, you know, they can't spend the money against the plan that they've overpromised mm. a competition. So I think, you know, we're moving to that phase of, you know, in the UK, there's some um, good programs which are really on consumption-based programs, you know, and then, you know, in the US, there are some programs around that. So I think it's separating the innovation. So the SMART grant, we actually just got awarded a grant from the Californian Energy Commission, mm. which is a integration innovation project. So um, it's 1.7 million, which could lead into a much bigger grant if we're successful. But that's really innovation. It's very clear. That's trying to solve the grid integration and resilience problem, which needs to be solved. Um, and then we can scale it as a commercial business if it works. So yeah, it's really about that, yeah, understanding those different types of grant programs and the stage that you roll out the different programs. Amazing. So firstly, congratulations for winning that grant. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a good news. And, and I agree with you, this uh, grid side management, you need to have involved them in the room, in the discussion, in your planning. And that's what recently I was discussing with a couple of players. And I said, have you ever talked to your grid and tell them that you are going to electrify your whole fleet and you need that much of energy? And I was shocked because the answer was no. And I said, guys, that's the first person you should go back and, and talk to them because otherwise you will be in a big trouble. So what you mentioned about that innovation program, no, it will be interesting. I'll happy to put more detail in the show notes so that people can explore what you guys are doing in California and how they can use similar model in their city and state. Yeah, just one quick point on what you mentioned um, before about grid. One of the really important things, you know, I have to harp on planning and obviously I've got a, an interest in this, but you know, the grid providers don't want to know your one-year plan. They yeah. want to know your 10-year plan. Like grid providers plan in five-year blocks in the mm -hmm. minimum. If you're going to be put in a big zone substation, you know, somewhere in your grid, you know, you're planning for a whole region of different diversifiers uses. You don't want to plan for like, and so what's been happening a lot is you go to your grid and you say, look, I want to buy five buses or five trucks. And they're like, okay, well, we can't really help you. If you go to them and you say, look, over the next 10 years, we're going to buy a thousand in these different locations. That's very meaningful information for them. So, yeah. you know, some of that integration is also what do you take to them when you speak to them is really critical. Mm -hmm. and, and show them that you have a long-term plan because then they see business. Ultimately, they want to make business out of it. And like you, I really love your point when you said they think about in five-year block. So they don't think year to year, like what is your requirement next year? They want to see what you want to achieve by 2030 and 2035. So it, it's important point. Something I also want to discuss with you because you are working in different region and different region, you mentioned about that, that each region has a different business model. 
I think the role of private player is also very critical for this whole energy transition. So we need to look more public-private partnership approach to make such investment. Like I've seen some cases in Latin America where there are some utility company which are not only bringing the fleet but funding the whole infrastructure and and giving to the operator. How different regions are structuring their business model or contract type? Like still they are using the old contract type for electric buses or do you think they should change their contract type depending on the new vehicle technology and and do you see there are benefit to go for this ppp model for agencies to fund this whole infrastructure thing yeah look i mean it's, it's it is a little bit sort of regional but i think yeah as an agency the key sort of starting point is to strip it back to just the fundamental system so i look at mm whole thing as a system, whether it's hydrogen, whether it's electric, there's an end-to-end -end system from the production through the tr you know, transport and delivery through the depot and the vehicles. So if you're going to start PPP, you know, make sure you understand all the components of the value chain, mm -hmm. because ultimately what a PPP is bringing is finance and risk abatement. And so if you don't understand what you're financing and the risks of the things you're doing, it's very easy to get you know, washed into an arrangement that is not necessarily beneficial. Either it's too expensive or you're abating risks that aren't really that risky. Mm. So if you can understand those risks, then you can really make a very solid informed decision about whether that's a good decision. So you know, in some cases, it's just a capital availability problem. Look, there's, there's the one thing I will say is there is billions of dollars that want to come into the space. You know, we, mm. we work for lots of those people. They use our software. You know, you know they're great. And so... We believe in the model um, and you know, there's no lack of funding and it, it needs to be how do we unlock that because you know, cost of capital for a lot of agencies just isn't the problem. You know, they can mm -hmm. borrow money a lot cheaper than anyone. So if you sort of say then the risk problem, I mean, a lot of people in London, for example, are using that model to get off the ground and they'll do a project and say, right, we need to push a lot of the risk onto somebody. And as they learn, they can bring it more in-house over time. That's been quite a, a common thing in some regions, but it's really you know, being in the driver's seat by having that understanding, knowing that kind of, um, you know, un, uh, you know, garnished model, if you like, and you know what all <laughs> those things are. Um, and then you can sort of build on top of that. Like, is it good for your balance sheet? Yeah. You know, is it good to, to do that? Now, one thing I will say is we're a big believer in charging hubs. Um, you know, I can't announce it, but we have some very exciting projects emerging in fleet charging hubs. And what that is, is essentially a charging hub that sits you know, outside of a fleet, like a you know transit fleet or a school bus fleet, and you go and use it like a petrol station or a, mm. a fueling. Now that's good because it's off balance sheet. You know, the private sector can kind of get on with it, but they need data to do that. And we're working on projects where we're saying, can we get regional fleet data to help give the private sector what they need to understand how to finance? Because it becomes a much better proposition if you've got understood load that you can mm. finance against. So. I believe in charging hubs. It does fit the infrastructure model. I also believe in large-scale precinct development. If you're going to build a big transit hub, you want to build a building on top of it. You know, zero emission vehicles are great for that. You're moving away from diesel, which you can't build on top of um, depots because of the the noise and pollution. That's a great use case for a PPP. You know, so yeah, there's sort of cases where it works well. No, that's a that's a good point you mentioned about charging hub because I was discussing with few agencies and I was mentioning to them, why don't you allow private vehicle to use the charging infrastructure during the daytime? Uh, because when the buses are out, so you don't need the load, but but it can be used by some other player. And and I have seen some agencies are now thinking about it. 
And and the second point which you mentioned, I think that's very important for people to understand. In the beginning, it's better to give risk to the player who can understand the risk. Over the period when you get more educated, you can take that risk in your own balance sheet. Like example, I see some of the Spanish player when they procured the electric buses, they took warranty for 12 years for the batteries. And yeah. now they realize that we don't need to uh, do so much of risk assessment or risk management for the batteries. It's it's okay to take in our own balance sheet. So in the next contract, now they are not going for 10-year warranty. They are going only for standard three-year warranty because they understand they can they can manage that risk. So that point is very important. And what you said is that city need to plan. They need to think about how my 10-year or 20-year will look like and where I should start putting the blocks now, the foundation blocks. Yeah, exactly. And and it goes to the same point, you know, having the understanding internally and, and that plan. Because again, if you do commit 100% to a particular model and in two years you're locked into something and it's, and it's very rigid, it doesn't let you innovate to new technologies and you're really in the hands of third parties, you know, that can be quite, you know, a problem. So yeah, if you have that long-term plan, you go, look, we'll do this first one, we'll learn from it. And then we've got two or three others. That, that's, that can be a very good way to structure the transition for sure. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Now, one question everybody asks me is the total cost of ownership. And everybody say the electric buses are expensive. You save money from maintenance. You save money from, from diesel and uh, the, the electricity charge. But still, the total cost of ownership is high. Interestingly, one of the founders I spoke recently, and, and she mentioned that the cost of ownership of electric vehicle will start going down from this year onward. So we have kind of reached a tipping point. What is your view on that? And as you're working with different stakeholders, uh, what do you think uh, about the total cost of ownership? Have we reached the tipping point yet or, or it will take a little more time? Yeah, look, I mean, it's unfortunately, it's a little bit um, use case specific. So, um, yeah, in some use cases, like if you look at Ubers in California, you know, they're all Teslas. There's so, sorry, not all, but there's so many Teslas now. I mean, the reason for that is the residual values are really strong. So, you know, in our yeah. model, we build, there's so many components, you know, there's how far do they travel? If you've got a an operating model where you, you're getting a return on investment as you operate a vehicle, it really does matter whether you travel lot longer distances because, a, you know, a payback is much faster the further you drive. So, mm. you know, these Uber drivers, why are they doing it? Obviously, there's some incentives in California, but putting that aside, you know, the residual values are great. And, the, you know, Tesla talks about a 1 million mile battery or sorry, 100,000 uh, kilometer battery. So there's these things really impact on total cost of ownership. So, mm. you know, transit agencies, there's the infrastructure cost, there's a supply, you know, the value chain all together. So that is sort of a, you know, a, a limiting factor to when the total cost of ownership will flip. It's definitely getting closer. I mean, there was a real problem in the supply chain of batteries. People mm. thought this was going to happen a lot sooner, but there was just such a constraint around battery availability that you know it wasn't available, and still you know vehicle supply is a massive problem. And so when you've got a supply and demand challenge, you know we all know from economics what happens. Um, so you know that is sort of working its way through. But again, you know are there garbage trucks available? Are there you know which use cases are available and what volume will drive? If you've got twenty municipalities in the US desperate to do a you know an announcement around a garbage truck, and there's only a hundred in the whole country, you know you just have a, a, a an imbalance of, of power with the supplier. So mm. yes, it will happen. It's very use case specific and also region specific. So it'll happen. But yeah, there's going to be a tipping point in the next couple of years for sure. Mm. 
where that supply chain unlocks, where you know more suppliers come into the market, um, and there is that sort of rebalancing to demand. Yeah, and I I think what what you said initially is important that each agency need to figure out their own way, so they need to analyze what is their uh, tipping point and how they can reach the tipping point faster, either by creating those charging hub or lending letting these charging infrastructure to be used by other player or having a different composition of fleet, uh, not always require a large fleet and you have a different size of fleet. So so that's why the planning will be very important. And uh, yeah, I, I think now other important point I want to discuss with you, which you already doing a project, which I just came to know today. So I would love to know more about that. But uh, I know EV Energy is working uh, with utilities and uh, electricity network providers because they are the key player for this whole uh, transformation. How the nexus of energy market and transportation is working and, and why it is important for decarbonation. And can you share, because there are a lot of, I see the gap between communication between energy companies or utilities companies and fleet provider. So how that intersection can happen and uh, and what fleet operators should be prepared for? There may be some challenges. So it's not easy to push these utilities companies. So what are their constraint and restriction they should be aware about? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, well, we've talked already about the planning, the, the mismatch in planning horizons between people trying to do a pilot and getting a low no application in, for example, quickly or a Zebra application in quickly and the need of the grid, which is much slower moving, big infrastructure that needs to be well planned over time. So yeah, we have worked with grid. We have a product called Gridfleet as well, which helps grid um, companies plan. Yeah. Um, another digital twin model for for grid companies, and you know, and that really you know, tries to give them some tools to say, well, at least there's these depots in our region. We know they'll probably transition in this time frame. It's it is very difficult though to get that accurate. Um, so that's sort of the one side is the planning long term. There's also what does the grid need as a technology? It needs flexible loads. It needs mm. things it can talk to in ways that provide it. You know, if you think about the grid. It operates on this horrible principle of, you know, a lot of the time it's here, and then once every now and again it's here. Yeah. You've got to be for that top peak, peak moment, right? Yeah. So there's an overbuild. So you know, pushing a lot of that build to the edge, to the edge of the network, having decentralized energy um, can flatten that load. Having load management flattens that load. Mm. A lot of the you know the grant that we we went for, but we've actually had quite a lot of grants in this space in other countries, in Australia, for example, are about like how do you work out that amount of flexibility you know transit's mission critical you know the the instinct will be not to help the grid you know just to operate you know mm. because you know pull out is the number one thing for a, for a transit agency you know they've got to get that thing on the on the route so you know having sophisticated charge management systems like the one we've built which is really very context aware and understands the transit side like what are they trying to do what are the routes of today What's the conditions of today? So you can always understand, is there any flexibility at a granular level? Um, I mean, one of our visions is that it's an end-to-end -end platform. You know, they're looking mm -hmm. at the planning, they're doing the management, but the day ahead, there's a problem and they can plan for that problem the day ahead, i.e. there's a grid outage, like what do they do? Or otherwise mm -hmm. the grid needs support. They need to have a way to do that auto automatically in the system. They need to emulate that problem so that the next day they can actually, they can actually give support to the grid when they need it. Um, obviously, there's decentralized energy as well. So how do you bring in battery storage? How do you bring in, mm. um, you know, these things? 
into the mix for an agency who needs the resilience. So they need to know they're going to have it. But when they're not using that battery, how do they trade it into the grid? Or hopefully like a hydrogen generator, whatever they have locally that's sustainable, um, how do they use that? And I mean, the only last thing I'll say, which is very big picture and long-term, but I know something that you're interested in and do ask people about is, yeah, autonomy and how does that play into this? So, yeah, you know, a big vision, I guess, yeah, for me in the long-term and I guess probably a lot of people is, how does this all work when the grid can talk automatically to a system that's autonomous and has the ability to respond in very logical ways? Mm. You know, that is a very big question. And that moment where, you know, a grid is intelligent, the vehicles are intelligent, and they can communicate real-time messages about savings and all these things, you know, as a completely rational actor, that's going to be a very interesting future problem um, that needs to be solved. I'm now curious, like, do you know any city which is working in that direction where they are integrating grid with the fleet uh, management and talking to each other? Because recently I was talking with one agencies and I, I told them that in future, you need to talk to your grid on daily basis. Like, what is your requirement and how they can help you? And probably they will cut back to you and say, hey, guys, I need more electricity today or we have a peak load. Like you mentioned, we always, there is always an overcapacity, but it can also be under capacity when there is a peak demand. So so do you know any city which is already working in that area? Yeah, look, a lot of, you know, look most operators in most cities are aware of this. They're just so focused on their current problems that are sort mm. of like, what will happen? They'll, they'll usually specify that there is load management and there is that ability. I mean, we're working with a number um, who, who are actively doing that. And in fact, we're working with some utilities that are becoming PPP providers, if you like. Yeah. And so they're actually the ones implementing the infrastructure, you know, in some countries um, for doing that. So we have done trials. So in Australia, we did a trial with a company called Busways and Endeavor Energy, who was a distributor. And we actually, we did say, you know, send them signals. Hey, you know, this is what the load is right now. And they could respond. It was very R&D. And a lot of these are still R&D. Um, but look, there's vehicle to grid trials. There's, you know, this is definitely something that's, actively happening you know grid companies are, are very alive to this opportunity now this is a huge revenue opportunity for them so you know, they're investing they're engaged um, at least from their side so it's more about you know settling this first phase of people just trying to get the basics right where these things will become more business as usual and um, but it's not simple and the cc grant that we submitted was really around how do you solve through that complexity mm. where people are just thinking about their own problem. Yeah, they're not worried about the, the bigger problem. Um, you know, how do you send them a signal that they can respond to without, you know, any detriment to their own to their own operational environment? Yeah, yeah. No, you rightly mentioned people are just focusing on their own problem. Same with the grid. They are just focusing on their problem of peak demand and of peak demand. They don't care about whether tomorrow there'll be buses or not. So uh, it's just one of the clients. So they need to look after the whole city. But I, I think what you said is important that these communication channel will be created and there'll be more and more communication with grid and the fleet operator. And they need to think now. They need to think and plan these things now because once you have a big capacity, like 5,000, 6,000 fleet, then you really need to talk to them. The the other interesting point which I learned from you and which I never thought about is when you when you said about the backup capacity at the depot and and a lot of cities are actually installing Ginset for backup capacity which is like I was talking recently with <clears throat> Cummins so Cummins is working with some of the city to install 
the the generator and like a one megawatt generator for as a backup for the capacity. But but one when you said the hydrogen genset and fuel cell generator, I think that can be a future opportunity if you if you really don't want to go all the buses fuel cell, but you can create some kind of a uh, backup plan with that. Now, other point I want to check with you because a lot of cities are now looking hydrogen and fuel cell as an option because they feel it's too complicated to go electric way. Uh, the electric bus, you need to manage charging, you need to manage load and uh, range anxiety. So, so they think it's it's not it's less challenge compared to compared to electric. But then I spoke to some other city like Quebec City. I was telling them, guys, you're not doing anything hydrogen. And they said, we don't need our electricity is so clean. We have hydro, it's free, it's cheap. So we don't need to do anything. So how do you see the impact of availability of local renewable energy sources on the impact of the fleet and how much they should consider that? Because a lot of cities don't do that. They just pick technology based on their requirement, but they don't think about what is available. Like you mentioned, a lot of cities, they don't have hydrogen available. And so how does this availability of local resources, like availability of hydrogen or local electricity, will have uh, impact on the, their choices? Yeah, look, I mean, that's an episode in itself, isn't it? It's a very, uh, <laughs> a very contentious issue and it's very, you know, there are there are very strong views um, on, on this issue. I think, like, if you look at the macro and you sort of stand back again at a sort of a society level, the value chain end-to-end -end for hydrogen and electricity is probably the key question. So the, we've done some work with, you know, large governments around the world, obviously. Some of them are very passionate about hydrogen. And I should say, like, our vision is to accelerate the decarbonisation of transport. And that's an agnostic concept, right? So yeah. but it does mean we have a lot of debates internally because we have to take a view, like, what, what do we think will happen? Where should we orient ourselves to support mm. transition? So you know, at that macro level, the question really comes down to what's the highest and best use of green hydrogen? So does it exist? And is it shipping? You know, is it the energy grid or is it, mm. is it vehicles, right? And when you talk to like very agnostic hydrogen people, you know, shipping is a really difficult use case to decarbonize and a very, very carbon intensive activity. And the energy grid is obviously, you know, boundlessly thirsty for mm. renewable energy. And at the moment, we've got renewable energy that is intermittent, you know, it doesn't operate all the time. So it's really about that. And then the physics of the supply chain. So, you know, mm. there's a lot of losses as you go down and convert hydrogen at different points, which which is a which is a challenge for transport. So again, when you're looking at highest and best use, it's also about where can it get most efficiently into the system. Mm. Um, so it's not about whether it's used, it's about at what point is it used because Hydrogen can create electricity that's used in transport, for example. Yeah. So, so there's definitely that availability locally, but there's also the contestability of it. So if you've got a, you know, a shipping company or an energy company saying, I'm going to sign a 10-year contract for that hydrogen, and I I need like just gigatons of that stuff. And you've got a transit authority going, I need to, I can probably sign a three-year contract or maybe <laughs> five years, and I only need a little bit. The cost, you know, the cost thing. So there, there's all of that stuff, right? So it's really around the problem of, you know, definitely on one in one mind operationally, I go hydrogen's great, mixed fleets are great, makes a lot of sense. You have backup. There's lots of problems as you get a fully electric fleet. The, the compounding of complexity and the resilience issue that you mentioned before, making sure you've got backup generators becomes like you just have to. There's no yeah. there's no option. You can't sort of say, oh well, we might have it because you just have to have it. There's got to be a resilient yeah. plan, right? 
So, but my my bigger picture hat says, is that hydrogen going to be available for for for, for these transport uses? And also the technology of, of both of those are going to improve. So it's hard for people to guess, but the battery technology and the issue of range is going to get a lot, a lot, a lot less of a problem. You know, there's battery technologies that are just, in my mind, in a couple of years, in in a horizon at maximum five, we're not going to be talking about that as such a big issue. There's the efficiency mm. of batteries will just get better, in my in my view, with my crystal ball. Um, so, yeah. So that's that's sort of the, there's lots of different things that go into that that question. Yeah, you know, your pers the person who worked with a lot of data, I always trust them because you are seeing a lot of data. So I fully trust uh, the battery technology is getting better. And I love your point when you said that there is a limited supply of green hydrogen. I mean, if it's a gray hydrogen, it makes no sense. But if it's a green hydrogen, there is a limited supply. What is the best use case? Is it marine? Is it buses? Is it uh, electricity utility company? So you should find the best use case. And and I, I agree with your point is use the precious resources where it's required, not for not for local transportation, which you can manage with electric buses. It's just you need to plan better. So it's right now it's not a challenge about you can do it or not do it. You can you can definitely do it. It's just you need to plan differently. You need to manage your resources better. But that's a that's a very interesting angle you gave, Daniel. I never heard this because a lot of people go into this debate of, yeah, you should have mixed fleet. You should uh, go for hydrogen or you should go for electricity. But your point of saying, what is the best use case for hydrogen? Let's just it comes down the same thing, doesn't it? It comes down to the. Am I thinking about my micro world, where or, or, you know I've got stakeholders who are paranoid about you know how we're going to run this and but it's up to the industry as well. Like we need to make this easier for people. We don't want to, we can't have fleet managers feeling this is going to be so hard that they just have to go with a technology that mm. makes their daily life easier. Like as an industry, we it needs to be more seamless. You know, it just needs yeah. to be an easy experience. Once you get that off the table, then people can just make sensible decisions on cost and sensible decisions on, you know, the long-term, um, you know, best technology. And I think that's also getting in the way of a lot of these decisions. People have had bad experiences and then they really zone in on, um, and, and one of the problems with hedging and having lots of bets on technology is we can't improve one of them to the point where it right. is really, you know, you're trying to make different things easy and, you know, you're not making one thing seamless for people, which is what everyone wants. Yeah. Hedging is good to a certain extent. If you over hedge, then you kill, <laughs> you kill your investment. So I agree with you. You you should do hedging, but uh, then you're not giving full resources to one technology which can excel and which is proving. Now you are working with many agencies and city to plan their transition. Uh, and all these planning and simulation require heavy data. You you are dependent on data. You need data to make these simulation because like you said, you are preparing digital twins for fleet operation. You are preparing digital twins for grid. So you need data. The challenge is when you talk to most of the city, either they don't have data or they don't have data in the right format. And it's a big challenge. How do you overcome this challenge? And uh, how do you think cities should think about standardization of data? Because it can help not for their planning, but also in their operation and bringing efficiency. So are you working with the city to make sure they are thinking about this data standardization? Yeah, look, definitely. I mean, I think to some extent, again, getting back to this acceleration and making it easy, you do have to meet people where they are with data. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have people who are trying to do plans and they have like just terrible data. And so you kind of look for what do they have. You know, mostly people will have an asset list, they'll have fuel cut <laughs> data, they'll have stuff. Like, you know, in transit, look, you've got GTFS, you've got Trans Exchange, you've got scheduling systems, 
that are pretty ubiquitous, you know, Hustus and Optibus and these guys. So in transit, there is usually data that is usable and quite good to get the digital twin that we need. Um, in municipal, it is a really, really big mixed bag. You know, you do have some people with good data, but you do need to start there. Now, if you start there, you know, you can get people to a point where they're actually justifying getting data from the first iteration of what they see. So they go, oh, look, this plan, it's a bit, you know, it's, it's not great. There's too many assumptions. Like we think it's good, but there's a lot of assumptions. Oh, look, if we had telematics, we could really, you know, we could really get that to the next level. These are big investment decisions. Let's let's invest in that. So you can really use a transition, you know, to, to drive that process. And I mean, you know, the ACEs, I mean, we all know that in, in mobility, obviously, and connected and electric are two yeah. core pillars in there. And yeah, it will become more connected. And yeah, we've seen examples, just to give you one use case, where a client of ours, a very big fleet, 20,000 vehicles, admittedly, but they we found they could save 75% of the cost of infrastructure by using their telematics to mm. more intelligently work out where to charge, right? And we're talking about 9 million to about 1.5 million. That's Australian dollars, sorry. But that's a very significant difference, yeah. with, right? Um, and why is that? Because everyone overbills otherwise. You want one charger for every vehicle. You want, you know, you want... But we're going to have on-route charging, you know, for, for passenger vehicles at least. So, you know, it, it can justify that data requirement. So I think data will come. You know, it's coming naturally as part of the, the kind of maturation of the industry. Uh, but this can also help support that. You know, it can really justify it in the sense of, you know, more optimised charging, you know, better infrastructure planning, um, can help to to sort of justify that that data uh, migration. Yeah, I mean, what you said is it, that's what I, the trend I'm seeing with a lot of agencies. They are building now charger one to one. They are saying uh, let's just have one charger for each bus because it's complicated. We don't know. So the safe bet is like have uh, more charger. And I was like, do you really need? Uh, but they were like, oh, I don't know. I may need it, I may not need it, but uh, right now I'm constructing my new depot, so it's better to have all the chargers one-to-one. -one. And like you said, uh, with better telematic, with better planning, you can actually save some of these resources. And and these are precious resources. You can that use that money to buy more assets. So so that's important. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to, you know, set up a, you know, private versus public debate here, but I mean, I can just see in our portfolio, you know, we've got some people private operators trying to put nine vehicles on three charges yeah. to meet to meet commitments that they've made with their <laughs> commercially, right? And then we see this other side, which is, you know, as you say, like really gold plating to some degree. So I think that learnings need to be shared about like, you know, there's a balance, right? You, you need the resilience in mission critical environments, um, but you do need that balance. And to your point about data format, sorry, just before, super important, um, you know, there does need to be also standardization in planning processes, which is a bigger debate. I you know, probably doesn't have time to get into it now, but if you're all planning in different ways, the problem is you can't share information. You can't actually benchmark, you know, who's yeah. doing as well as you move forward. And you can't give data to people like utilities in a common format, you know, that they all go, oh, everyone's planning in a way that when we get that data, we understand it works for us. So it's not just the data, it's actually the architecture around how that, you know, in accounting, You've got data standards, but you need to have you know, agreed accounting standards. Mm. And I think in this space, there needs to be both. There needs to be an approach to data and interoperability, but there also needs to be agreement on the approaches that we're taking because they are different everywhere. So, you know, standardization of that would also really help. 
that that's something superb because i never thought from that point of view like a lot of people talk about data standard but what you said about accounting standard how to use that data if you can standardize that you can actually benchmark and you can exchange resources and then we can have more regional uh, fleet we don't need to constrain yeah. to one your your own operation like you said this narrow view of what i'm doing then you can think about sharing resources and uh, being more cost efficient so that accounting standard point uh, i i think we can kind of spend hours and hours on that point because that's a challenge i see with many cities yeah absolutely now one point i want to check with you because uh, you have that experience of working with so many different cities and countries and so many different players and as a founder and and they tell that any successful founder he's successful because he see pattern he see pattern how things are happening or repeating in different places and if he see something is going wrong you can stop so to make a successful transition you know there are certain pattern and to fail a, a transition you also know there are pattern so what are those pattern you are seeing in different cities and in other word i would say if you can share some of the lessons you have seen or lesson learned from different city or mistake they have done in different city which other city can learn from like some of the common mistake all these player do and you feel like why they are doing it uh, because you have seen this again yeah it's a tricky question um i think look i think the planning again plan 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 so yeah the the cities that have and, the, and there's a lot of different reasons for that so the one reason is simply you can stage appropriately you can announce something that's exciting without forcing politically motivated individual you know big bang shows mm. or big announcements which often it all it means is you've you've overspent on something too quickly to make an announcement yeah. and we see this a lot like you know particular projects not being successful because people have gone too quickly too fast to be the first hey we've got the first this or the first that but in reality, that's you get quite stuck in those situations. If you can announce, like, and be comfortable with, we've got a great plan. This is what it is. We're very excited. We're going to you know, roll it out in this way, and avoid those sort of, um, you know, to, to the extent that they're not clearly demarcated as this is a trial, this is an innovation project. You know, we know we're going to fail. That's okay. You yeah. know, if it's if it's framed as a commercial endeavor and it fails, that has massive ramifications across the industry, across other operators who. You know, when that person stands up at a conference and said it was a disaster, and it, it wasn't a disaster as an innovation project, which everyone accepts, it was a disaster as a commercial project, that has huge ramifications. So I think avoiding those sort of, you know, in, you know situations is really important. Um, you know, the other sort of element of that is having then the agility to to move and sort of say, look, we have, we have, we have failed, that's okay, because it was an early project. We all admitted to ourselves that vehicle technology wasn't quite ready or you know that um, the charging technology, whatever it was, yeah. like we, but we we then pivoted and we went no. Well, now we're going to go here. We haven't overcommitted. We're going to go to this next phase, and that's done in a kind of a more seamless, mm. uh, seamless way. And 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 equally, I think that you know that broad thinking about how does that fit into the grid, how does that fit into all the other stakeholders, and you know where that's been done well around the world. And I, I'd probably prefer not to mention customers specific <laughs> um but yeah where that's been done around yeah. the world or, or poorly is 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 really important so i think those you know those key things you know solid planning you know not overreaching all at once and and you know having a project that fails because of that being clear that it's either innovation or commercial and not getting those things sort of um i guess mixed up 
Um, but also, like, if you do fail, like, persist. You know, don't mm. give up. You know, because a lot yeah. of a lot of the political, you know, we're burnt. Something went really wrong. If you framed it as innovation, then that's okay. If you framed it the wrong way, it's a disaster. So all of those things sort of interlink to just keep going. You know, learn the next lesson and persist, and don't just go on a completely different route because you've had you've had a single failure. Yeah, no, that uh, that uh, entrepreneurial mindset, or I would say, growth mindset, is required. Like, if you fail, what lesson you learn and how you can improve next time. And I think the other challenge I see is when you find your right mix, double down on that. So once you need to experiment on different things, but once you once you like in in entrepreneurial uh, world, we call it product market fit. So once you find your product market fit, you just need to double down and go for that. And I think somewhere the city make that mistake. Even they discover, okay, this is the right way they should go, but they then still try to experiment and remain in the pilot mode. They never try to double down and and take it forward. Oh, that's a very good point too. Absolutely. Where, where you have got the mix right for your environment. Um, and some countries, I mean, in the UK, for example, they have they have made mistakes and they have mm. a point now where they're landing and they are actually starting to double down, which is great to see. Yeah, yeah. Now, let's discuss about your entrepreneurial experience because, I, like I said, I'm really uh, inspired to see your journey. You started your career in Australia and now you are based in US and you are scaling up the company. So you co-founded this high growth startup and look to expand international market from the beginning, which is not an easy thing. A lot of startup uh, fail to scale up outside. So can you share some of the important lessons you learned so far from your entrepreneurial journey and anything you want to share with the, with the founder, which are building a climate tech or clean tech startup, because it's even harder, like building startup is harder, but something solving this global level problem uh, where things are not clear yet. People, you need a lot of education. I know at Betterfleet, you are trying to even not only sell the service, but you are actually doing a lot of education piece for the client. So what are the lessons you learn in your entrepreneurial journey? Oh, so many. Um, you know, <laughs> in my life in this particular journey. So, you know, I think what you said before about you know, falling, well, you had Uri on a few weeks ago, I think a few months ago on, you know, falling in love with the problem. And in a space which is tough, you really have to love the problem. You know, to yeah. get up every day, the ups and downs, you can't just sort of mildly love the problem. You know, you need to really love the problem. So I think finding a problem that you are passionate about, um, that you will really keep driving towards um, solving is really critical. And because your advantage as a founder of all the huge global companies that might enter later, because they do, you know, you see it probably a bit earlier than others because, you know, that's the entrepreneurial thing. But yeah. others will see it and they'll launch in with lots of money. But as a as a passionate founder, your advantage is that you'll go deeper into that problem with more passion, which means that you'll be more committed to finding. And those real nuggets of gold are in the real detail. They're not in the like, you know, someone's done a macro business plan and got excited it's in the kind of trenches of all the problems you see day to day, which is where you find product market fit. Mm. You know, that is the product market fit uh, realm. So that's your advantage. You've got to really leverage. And, you know, part of that is also, you know, pivoting really brutally. You can't, as a yeah. founder with capital, you can't sit around and think about whether, oh, maybe I can, make, like, if you know that something's wrong, like don't be frightened of just dropping it and moving on. I think a lot of founders get too attached to a solution to a problem and they don't pivot hard enough Quickly, quickly enough, and and I think some of the best decisions I've made in my career have been about pivoting, mm. really strongly. You know, when it it was hard, and I did have investors, and you know, I had to explain it to them, but it was worth it. So, I guess the last thing I'd say is, 
sort of a surfing analogy. I'm, I'm Australian and, you know, we think in surfing terms sometimes and, you know, you need, there's a wave coming and you probably see it before others, you know, yeah. you're going to see that wave emerging, you know, you need to make sure that you're positioned at the you're right certain. point to catch the wave with everything you need, the capital, the best people, the right technology, you know, you need to be catching that wave. And if you've got all those things in place at the right moment, then you will be one of the ones that catches that wave and is successful. Um, so it's really about that thinking about the timing of that wave and when it's coming, because you probably will see it two or three years before it's ready to really come. Mm -hmm. And you need to, you know, you need to, you know, you need to start at that point. Um, but be ready with everything you need when you hit product market fit, as you just mentioned before, you need to be ready to go and you need to be aware that you've hit it. And, you know, that's kind of where, where we, where we have, you know, have now come and, you know, it's super exciting when you get it, but then there's a whole new world of problems around, um, you know, how do you scale efficiently and effectively yeah. and not overheat as well, which becomes the next problem. I love that point. Uh, I love your surfing analogy point because that's what a lot of founders miss missed. Once you miss the wave, then you have to wait for the next one. And by that time, probably you will die or you will, you will not be available in yep. the market so so you have to wait for the right moment and you need to analyze and be ready for the wave to come you can't uh, can't build a house that time when the wave is there so you can't do things and when you said the overheating things and that's what i i saw from your company as well and correct me if i'm wrong because i try to check the public data you rightly said you should not overheat the company or startup and and i saw ev ev energy just has raised 3.9 million so far Given the the size of the company I built and the global scale, I see it's it's very small amount. And what's your secret? Can you share how did you manage to do more with the less money? And also, can you share what was your funding experience uh, when you went to the market to raise one? Like you mentioned, you did pivot and you told your investor very clearly that I have to pivot and I have to do this. So how you build that trust with the investor? Yeah, look, I guess the... Yeah, one thing is having a vision that's broad and expansive so you can pivot within it. I mean, we've now raised up, it's more like about 5 million. But yeah, it's it's, it's not not a lot compared to our peers, yep. right? Our peers have raised 80 million, 100 million. You know, yeah. <laughs> five, right? So it is, it is challenging. But I think part of it for us was that wave analogy. Like I didn't want to go and raise capital at a point in time where we spent it on the wrong thing. You know, and, uh, you know, we did pivot very hard and I, I'm very glad I didn't, I hadn't doubled down on what looked like a great thing at the time, um, which our first sort of plan as this company was much more around, you know, being you know more integrated in the energy market, being more kind of on the energy retail delivery side and doing all the things we're doing, but much more as an, an energy player. So EV energy was really about the EVs hitting the energy market. We were okay. coming more side originally. And so, you know, so that was the pivot. And, and you know, but if the, if the, investors are all focused on the same thing which is like when are you going to get product market fit they should be really happy that you've you've got a point where you're like that's not it let's hmm. you know let's keep going and find it because if you haven't spent a lot of money there's no real damage right you're like okay yeah. great um so you know our future plan well now we're, we're just closing out quite a big round to be honest and we, we're at that product market fit point and i'm very comfortable that we have those things the wave is at the right time you know because also if you go too early and you spend it before the wave's really there you're the one that makes all the mistakes that other people learn from, and then they come and raise money and go, oh, great, we know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, you know, in our transit space particularly, like the problem is very clear to us now mm. and the challenge is very clear and the solution is clear. So we need that money now to just execute. You know, we've got customers paying us. 
but we do need to step ahead of our customers so that they don't drive the the, the development and it's just you know it doesn't become a really scalable product you know we need to be driving ahead of them so you know now's the time you know there should be some very exciting announcements coming up soon um touch wood so oh yeah. amazing yeah so we are definitely you know we are we are ready for that now but I'm, I'm extremely glad that we didn't go early um yeah there's different strategies some people have done very well through doing that so there's definitely different approaches um but you know for me keeping that stability you know being careful and mindful that if you haven't reached that point capital can be very destructive and value destructive so that's been our been our strategy today no, when when you said overheating the company, that's that's what capital do. So capital can be very destructive. And I see like uh, right now we are seeing a lot of companies which are winding down, even raising millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. And and the reason for that is they never found the real product market fit and they keep doubling down on something which was not. Uh, so big news. Congratulations for that. So there are a lot of uh, exciting news coming from you. huh? Yeah, look, as I said, like the time is happening now and it's really, it's really that, um, you know, combination of the market being ready and 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 needing the product at the right time, um, and it's an exciting space to be. And I think you're know, having the credibility of having done so much, you know, really yeah. with clients. And a lot of it was done, you know, really kind of having to do algorithms on the fly and working with people in a very intense environment without the product being finished. And and you know, having that agility to do that, you know, meant that now that we are ready. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. we've done a lot of that work. So we are, there's not many people in the market that people can turn to that have that experience and understanding yeah. um, and who are transparent and honest as well, because, you know, we're, we're not just coming at it like at the last minute with a great idea that might or might not work. And we're going to go and try to deploy it with, with someone as a risk. Yeah, we, we, we've done the work to know and de-risk what we're doing to the point where we're going to people transparent. We're not telling people we've got all the answers, like no one does at yeah. the moment. It's still new, you know, but we have enough of the answers to be to, to be helping them at this point of their journey in the right way. Now, which is best thing. If your clients are working with you to solve that problem, it's the best thing. And and they understand that nobody else can do uh, solve their problem. So they have to get involved and, and it's a good thing. And one important thing you mentioned earlier, uh, when you be ready for the, for the right time of the wave, you need to have resources and you need to have people. And one of the key challenge for for founder who is in scale up mode is to find the right talent and and you know and also start shifting their role, like you did your bachelor in music. So I use this analogy of more as a conductor in orchestra, not not as a, a violin player or musician. So they become more like a conductor. What are your lessons uh, for hiring right talent and scaling up the company? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm I'm a voracious reader of management books. <laughs> I know yeah, I've studied it and I still read books constantly. Um, and yeah, and obviously just in practice as well. So I guess, you know, a lot of you know, there's books like The Coaching Habit and you know, recruitment recruiting slowly and taking that time and um you know, really being sure about people is critical. I mean, you don't always get it right, you won't always get it right, but investing in that, really trying to get the right people from a cultural fit perspective not just a skills perspective, like culture in our business has been a foundational element and is where people succeed or fail. You know, we talk about being empathetic and transformative. We talk about being clear and transparent. Like these are really important factors when we recruit someone. So if you get people with that ethos, you can trust them more because they act out of values that you agree with. So they might make a mistake, but they won't make a mistake for the wrong reasons. And that's that's incredibly important. 
you know, through literature and through experience, that empowering people means trusting that they've got values. So that's sort of the one part of it. And then it's really turning me into a coach. You know, like if you look at the LA Lakers or, you know, the Bulls, or you know, they, they had great coaches who knew how to get, extract the superpowers in each of those team members, but also work out how to get them to work as a team. So being someone who spots talent, can get the superpower out of someone, understand their superpower, but know how that fits in the rest of the team and crafting that team um, is also really important. But I think as a founder also, you've got to decide at some point, like, am I actually one of those players? Like, am I actually, do I need to be a Michael Jordan? I mean, obviously that's a, I'm not being arrogant, like, you know, but but do I need to be one of those players or do or am I the coach? You know, like if you mm. are really a great player at one of those things, it may be the decision to say, I should stay as a great player and I need to get someone who's an, you know, who's a, who's a conductor. And that's often a very hard decision for founders, but, you know, I'm constantly in that mode of at what point am I more valuable as a player than as a coach or can mm. I be a player coach? And there have been examples of player coaches, but you need to make that decision pretty clearly or your team gets confused like are you in the team or are you coaching me or are you you know and that's a very hard point and I don't think I've got that right just yet but I'm very mindful of like at what point do I really need to make that decision yeah but I think the most important thing is you are aware that you need to sometime take that decision or some point you need to decide whether you want to be a player or a coach but I, I love that point because finding people who are culture fit because that's what it's a mission it's not an easy journey and people who are really attached to the mission will will survive and will contribute and and it's hard to build a startup especially the area you're working on every day you have to work really hard to to bring value and solve these problem but also getting constantly coaching from somebody in the company and and working uh, for that mission so no i can see the the company i i know many of the people you have hired and i know they are some of the best player in the field so so you're building a right team you're building a right team i would say and yeah. uh, things going really well yeah definitely and look people are everything right in the end of the day a company is just a, a shell for a lot of people and so you know you can build a great product and it could be good for a while but then the market will catch up you need to build another one right you're building yeah. a, you're building an organizational architecture and at the core of that is people yeah 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 that's really true it's not the product it's the people now this is my last question and uh you know, everybody's right now talking about artificial intelligence. I was in Orlando in one of the conference and I see AI so many times and I was a little bit uh, sad because AI cannot do everything, but but people were like, AI is there, generative AI is, uh, uh, will change and transform a lot of things. What do you see the potential of AI uh, for, I would say, the energy transition space as well as for EV energy? How do you think... Uh, you can incorporate some of these AI feature in the product and help the customer? Oh, look, it's just such a complex and, and enormous space. And so it could, it, you know, I just mentioned before, it's all about people and it is, but you know, it, it is pretty incredible what's happening. And I think, you know, for many of us, quite scary as well. If you look at the large language model side, it is, yeah. it is daunting. I mean, the people who create it don't even know how it works. That's a pretty scary <laughs> place to be, right? Um, I think at a micro level, what we're doing, you know, it definitely impacts on how you deliver software. You know, the tools that are coming out and how powerful they are and how they do tests, testing automate, you know, automation and, you know, code snippets. And I mean, that's a really big shift and we have to be on that shift because we have to be competitive. So definitely on the software development side and how quickly we need to move compared to people, how quickly they used to move in developing new products is a huge thing. Customers are going to get really demanding for that. 
They're going to get demand for features to be delivered much faster than what people have seen in the past. So that's the sort of the one side. The other context of this is really in the products and AI and machine learning around the data. And so when you talk about a digital twin, we're really well positioned for that because mm. it's not the data, it's the context of the data that becomes so important. So when you talk about, you know, did that vehicle make that route? Was there a problem? You know, was the battery degraded or, you know, what was the topography of the route? What was the climate? What was the passenger loading? If you're storing all that information, then you start to get into a world of really being able to optimize dispatch and optimize, you know, charging times. You know, we know that the charging times took this long over this period of time in these conditions, right? It's not enough just to store the information itself. You have to have all of that data. So we do believe we're very well positioned in that space as an organization. We're collecting loads of data from our real-time environment. Yeah, but the whole Better Fleet platform was really built in a way that is very conducive to machine learning and artificial intelligence. So we're excited by that. I think the only other thing is in the fleet world, what happens with human machine interfaces? So does it doesn't yeah. become much more voice voice interface that, you know, if you're a if you're in a depot, you know, you've got a, an ear plug in and it's you're saying to it, what should I do? Where should I go? And in real time it's making decisions and talking to you that I can see a future whether that um it becomes much more of the interface as opposed to screens. Hmm. That that's interesting because what you're saying making sense is like instead of typing, people will just have conversations. So the planner, instead of going to the system and entering the bus route and number, they will just tell that, okay, this bus, this route, can you optimize and can you provide me the route and, and the machine? So that human machine interface will change. So we will, the, the habit of typing with our thumb probably will go away and uh, we will have more conversational. So, so that's interesting. No, thank you. Thank you, Daniel. I never thought of from, like, I get a lot of, lot of these moments where I think like, okay, I never thought from that point of view. And I, I really admire giving that new perspective because that's what I love with these conversations when you get a new perspective and you feel like, ah, I never thought about this and it can happen. So thank you for this lovely conversation. Generally, we end yeah. this podcast with this uh, okay, rapid I fire round. On that point, sorry, before we go on. Yeah. That's what I love about your podcast. That's what I love about you. You are just a life learner. You're always, you know, looking for that. So yeah, I really appreciate you saying that and appreciate what you bring to the table as well. No, thank you so much, Daniel. I, 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 I love, and you know, this is what I learned recently. Somebody asked, um, one of the big expert, like, what is the skill you should tell your kid to learn? And he said, I don't know. I, I would just say that tell your kid to be life learner. Just keep learning because the learning pace will change. You need to learn very quickly new things. And the pace of innovation, like what you said, the customers are more demanding. The technology is becoming faster. The innovation will be much faster. So who will survive? Who can adopt to the new climate and environment and new learning? If you don't do that, It'll be hard for people. So so that's that's true. Thank you for, for your kind word. And like I said, I end this podcast with this rapid fire round. We we learned a lot of technology side, your entrepreneurial side. Now we want to learn a little bit of your personal side. So if you're ready, I'll fire my questions. Yeah. Okay. So if you were not in environment and mobility sector, what other profession you would have selected? Um. Okay, that's tricky. I mean, if I wasn't in mobility, I'd be in sustainable cities again because I love that whole world so i find it hard to think about what i'd do if i wasn't in this space but obviously i do love music um it's a deep passion i still play my kids are learning two girls um so yeah it would probably be something in the in in that space i'd say ah so the, the probably the second career will be ev band or something like uh, after retirement that's right if i ever get any <laughs> do that, now, I will. 
would love to see that and uh, the other question i would ask is like you travel and you live in different part of the world which is your favorite city in the world and why oh look there's so many great cities you know in the world i love london and i love paris and you know i'm in san diego it's a beautiful city I, look i think ultimately i'm i'm from sydney i was born in sydney i was i grew up in sydney in australia um and so my heart will always be there it's just the most magnificent harbor city you know beautiful beaches you know it's, it's just an incredible environment you know for kids it does have a good public transport system it's very spread which makes it extremely difficult um very difficult and it's i think it's one of the least profitable <laughs> public transport <laughs> um systems in the world but yeah they try really hard on that basis so yeah i have to say sydney i mean i can't it, it, it's my home and it's just such a naturally beautiful city yeah no you always have something special for your for your birth city you always you can't can't uh, forget about it and same i born in delhi so it has a special place even wherever i'm living now you said you are a ferocious reader and you read a lot of management book which is your favorite book and which book you should tell every entrepreneur should read um well that's tricky because i think there's different books at different stages of of your journey um, yeah. so i'm in the stage i'm at now you know a book called the multipliers by Liz Wiseman and Greg McEwen, I think it is McEwen. Um, yeah, it's an amazing book. You know, how do you become that leader who multiplies others and doesn't diminish others? And it really is a hard book because we all have very bad habits. Mm. Um, and it's about how do you get rid of those habits, stepping in, and, you know, there's lots of things that we all have. So it's a very tough book to read in many ways, but it's really about how do you set up? And, and also just this whole concept of each of us impacts so many people in our lives. If you can make one person a multiplier in your whole life, they might make 10 people a multiplier who might. Mm -hmm. So it's a very great thought, thoughtful concept about how powerful it is for each of us to impact everyone we deal with in work and in our life in a, in a very positive way. So yeah. you know, it's an amazing, incredible book. Now, that's a, that's a very nice thing. What you said, if you can create one multiplier and get 10 and then the whole society will be better and that's what we say like one good people can create another good and then it can it can have the chain interaction and and the society will be good especially now what we are facing so it'll be good to have those kind of stuff so thanks for sharing i'll I'll check that book i haven't heard about it so it's 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 now in my reading list and uh, you can see i have a lot of books in my bag so it, it's it's going to be added there now my next question will be what one thing do you wish you should have learned early in life either professionally or personally? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I have learned a lot of lessons in my life, so it's hard to know which one to pick. But, um, look, I think, you know, at a very foundational level, you know, really remaining attached to your values as your North Star. You know, we can really get attached to our career, all the things in our career, our daily priorities, you know, but what is actually guiding you needs to be your values. And if I've ever sort of early in my life when you're, you know, you're you know less focused on your career and you don't have a family and, you know, you can lose sight of that. And really, I think, you know, if you, you know, I told you, like in my career, when I got onto the environment and business as my core, there was just a very pivotal shift in the way that I worked and my success. So I think that, you know, that, you know, really keeping your values at the center of your decision-making in your life is incredibly important. Yeah, that's a, that's a very important lesson, finding your North Star and sticking with it. So, and you will have a lot of uh, 
downs and then you will start questioning yourself but keeping attached yourself to your value will take you a long way so so that's an important lesson thanks for sharing it's it's quite interesting and that's what i love to hear people from different people and it give me new perspective so so thanks for sharing people who are listening to this will get a new perspective too this is the last question which i asked to all my guests and i get very different answers uh, some of them are really amazing but if you can change one thing in life what would it be um well look i mean probably one of the things that's causing a lot of i mean there's lots of things that would be great to change but i mean i think the the noise of this sort of bipartisan world that we live in and all of the you know the vitriol and things if we could just turn that down if we could have yeah. our commonalities drive our decisions not our differences you know it's a real problem that just seems to be exacerbated by social media as we all know and these things so if i could change that and i could just sort of clear somehow all that noise and let people kind of really just get back to hey we have a lot in common here we have lots of problems the solutions that we have we probably all basically want the same solutions ultimately um so you know, getting rid of that noise and just enabling people to just, you know, work on those problems. Um, that's kind of probably would be a very useful thing right now to be able to change in the way we're living. Yeah. And I, I think what you said is very important. Like we are so focused on the differences. So we forget about what is common, what all, what, what, what is make us all human. So if you start just figuring out that we all are the same in the core, maybe it's the packet, it's a package which look different, but in inner side, everything is same and everybody has the same heart and same soul and same mission in the life to do better. So, so we will have uh, a better world and let's hope, you know, we will have a better world. And, and, you know, somebody said we have come a long way and, and human will learn, will progress, things will get better. And I'm optimistic. So I always believe uh, that life will be good. And we have people like you who are trying to solve some of these big problem and, and helping the clients. So thank you for that. But thank you so much, Daniel. I mean, really loved your great insights, uh, really loved our conversation and uh, look forward to some of these exciting news you mentioned about uh, and I'm happy to see how we can support and help. Great, yeah. And as I've mentioned before, really appreciate the work you do and, and, and uh, please keep it up. It's fantastic. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this episode, please don't forget to give us a five-star rating as it will help us to spread our message. If you have any feedback or suggestion for this podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at info at the rate mobility-innovators.com. I look forward to see you next time. Thank you so much.